this episode of the show, we speak to Justin Spencer-Young about being a valueologist and discuss some corporate war stories. Justin Spencer-Young, welcome to the show. So I'm really glad to have you on board. And uh, speaking about something pretty interesting, because I don't think anyone actually comes across these terms very often, but speaking about being a valueologist and some corporate war stories. So welcome on board. Thanks for ha- having me, Oliver. I love to talk about myself. So, uh, you know, what more can I ask for than <laughs> to be invited <laughs> onto your podcast? <laughs> yeah, well said, well said. <laughs> I don't agree completely with that. But uh, I, I must say, so when we when our paths crossed due to a mutual friend, uh, Dave, um, the first thing Dave told me was like, you know, I, I need you to meet a friend of mine and he's a valueologist. And I, I promise you that wasn't in my vocabulary at any point. Uh, and I just thought, ah, that's pretty interesting. Um, so tell us, how, how did that even come about? I mean, is that a, so it's a very good branding exercise, obviously, because, you know, it sets you apart. But is that a, how did you come across that? Yeah, so um, I think I must first say to folks who are listening, don't go and Google it because you won't find the word. It doesn't. It doesn't exist other than maybe through my creation. So, so the origin story is I've got a, a very good friend and colleague by the name of Sean Temlett, and we've taught side by side. He is a specialist in strategy and marketing, and my speciality is in teaching finance and accounting, especially in the executive education arena. And Sean comes from an entrepreneurial background, and he gave himself a name where he called himself a gapologist. And when I, when I met Sean, what is 20 years ago, and he used this word as a, he called himself a gapologist, I was like, that's pretty cool. He had positioned himself as someone who likes to explore the gap in between businesses and then think about the business opportunity that exists to fill the gap. That's interesting. I've never heard that as well. Yeah. So this concept of a, of a gapologist, I was a little bit like, I want a cool name like that so that, (laughs) so that I can, because it very clearly described what he did. And one of the methodologies or one of the, theories that Sean had was and still talks about is that markets are dominated by a few big players. And if you think of these big players as, uh, let's call them tennis balls in a container, the bigger the, the tennis balls or the bigger the players, the more gaps in between. And that gap was was what he was looking into. So when a market has lots of players and lots of small players, there were less gaps. They were being, they were being filled. And I really liked that analogy. So for a long time, I had this, I need a cool name for myself. And then several years ago, Sean and I started a, a project where we were teaching a banking program at the University of Cape Town. And we ran this program for, for, Sure, a couple of years and many cohorts. And it was at the beginning of that that I decided that I needed, if Sean was going to introduce himself as the gapologist, I was going to introduce myself as something. And mm-hmm. I, I, that's when I came up with the valueologist because my, my teachings had evolved into talking about how companies create value. 
And with that was the subject of valuations. How do you value a company? And then valueologist in the same genre as gapologist emerged mm. from that. So I, I claimed it. I made it mine. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the origin. Okay, that's actually an amazing story. Um, and I suppose you can't not, you can't have that title without putting like a whole curriculum around this, so that other aspiring valueologists can probably follow the same suit. Or is there only one? Well, no. I mean, I can't I can't lay claim to being the only one who occupies the space. Okay. I, I learned I learned so much from a gentleman by the name of. Professor Aswath Damodaran, and he is the professor of finance at Stern University in New York, and he has been teaching valuation there for uh, longer than I am alive, just about, and he's probably forgotten more than I know, and over many years of listening to his material and really coming to terms with the nuance of valuation, I, I felt as though I had the credentials, one, to teach it, which I've done for now nearly 20 years, and then eventually to be able to say, okay, I can occupy this space. I'm not an Aswath Damodaran. He is, uh, he is the guru, you know, and I've got on my bucket list to go and to go to New York and to go to Stern University and sit in one of his lectures and, and hear him live. But, you know, you can get his content online and he is very generous with providing access to his material. And having learned from his material, my view was the, the learning from the material is great, but actually the individual who shows up in the classroom is the, where the beauty of the learning takes place. It's the way he delivers it. It's his style. It's, it's him. And that kind of gave me the, the peace of mind to say my content must, the same as that, must be out there, must be available. Anyone must be able to go and see it and listen to it. And the unique thing must be me. People must pay for me or want to see me talk about it. So I learned that from Aswath, Professor Aswath Damodaran. Hmm. Um, and and really, now my view is my view is that content creators must be able to make lots of content that's freely accessible. The special stuff you might say, well, okay, over here, you know, this is special and you need to pay for it. And then if you need me to come and do something, well, then I will bring something special that you've never seen before when I come and teach you or talk to you about it or something like that. Mm, well said. I mean, I, I think I really resonate with that. And I think we, it's been something we've been trying to get our clients to do as well. You know, the more you speak about an area of interest, you know, the, the bigger the awareness and then people kind of associate you, know, you with that, you know, whether that's, you know, we work mainly with healthcare practitioners. So, you know, whether that's depression or nutrition and mental health or something like that. But I, I really like that idea of like just giving. And I think the first time I probably came across that was, you know, listening to podcasts. And I saw like, you know, like you're really great pod, you know, podcast hosts like Pat Flynn and Mike Dillard. I mean, every week they just pitch up and there's a new episode and, you know, I never paid for anything. I'm not on their yeah. email list, but I just get this value from them every week, you know, and I thought that's pretty interesting. 
you know, there must be something to that. And it's exactly what you're saying. And uh, I think it's probably the perfect time to talk about your podcast, you know, the Fast Forward Business Podcast. And, um, you know, we, we joked about it just before the show. And I said, you know, it's amazing, you know, because we were talking about analytics. And it's amazing. It's almost like, seems like your journal, your diary. I don't know if that's how you see it as well. It's a little bit like that. It's it's very selfish in that regard because I don't necessarily have guests. Well, in all my podcasts, I don't have guests. I don't interview them. And it's a the podcast is quite a short piece. Generally, they're between maybe four and six minutes long. So it's just a it's like a snippet. It's a it's a shot of value, if you want to call it that, where I talk about a lesson or a subject or something that relates to the world of valuation or value creation. And I draw inspiration from from such a wide kind of source of material. Sometimes it's quite esoteric. (laughs) Other times it's very precise. You know, this is what we're talking about and here's something that might help you. Other days I talk about my experience of of running where I have some crazy ambitions there and it, it just depends on where it comes from. And I, yeah, I think I've done over a hundred of these now and I find that my ability to be able to express the words in a clear, succinct message helps me organize my own thoughts. Hmm. And that's the benefit that I've got from it. Um, and I haven't had a lot of feedback on the benefit of that other people get from it, but I do get feedback from my, from my just in time newsletter, which is often the source of the material that I use in the podcast. Mm. So I've, I've written about it at some stage before it makes its way into a verbal content. Mm, I see that. I was going to mention that as well, because I think you caught a, quite a big LinkedIn, um, uh, user as well. I mean, I see your post yes. on LinkedIn, which is amazing. Yes. Um, and someone was telling me recently, you know, she's a healthcare practitioner and she's, you know, she was on LinkedIn and she said, you know, the, the analogy we used was, you know, that's where the audience is and that's where you want to go to. So rather than building up the list, I mean, why not just connect with people on the platform, yeah. you know, to get your that's word right. out. Um, coming back to the podcast though, I must admit that you're quite brave that some of your topics are actually quite, uh, yeah, it's quite political as well. Is, is that how you is that how you meant it to come across as well? Is that intentional or is it just no, this is Justin um, and how that's how I want to portray it? Yeah, what, what you get on the podcast is you get me, and in fact, on the political stuff, it's actually quite reserved. I might come across from time to time as being rather forceful in my opinions, but if I really let myself loose on the political front, there would be I would say a lot more and probably get in a lot more trouble and be more opinionated in the, in the political space, but I, that, that can be very polarizing. So I don't want it to be a political podcast. That's not the intention, but sometimes it, it creeps in there and I just can't, <laughs> I can't resist. So <laughs> yeah, it does, it does come out, but that's not the intention. No. Mm, yeah. And that's why I use the word brave because I, I think, uh, so I, I think it's something probably to, to bear in mind when you do consider sponsorships of your podcasts or so. <laughs> you probably have to align your sponsors with the, you know, the message, uh, like recently, you know, with the Garrett Cliff show, uh, Cliff Central, you know, one of the big sponsors pulled out, uh, you know, yes. based on what he was saying. 
but it's interesting. Um, I'm just obviously joking about that, but uh, I, I yeah. thought it's quite quite refreshing, and I like what you said. You know, it's you. You know, it's Justin, and you know the way the way I like to to look at it as well is if someone met us in the boardroom, or uh, you know, this is you know uh, with Shaz and I, uh, who does the other podcast. Uh, but I said, you know, if someone met us, it should be like they already knew us. And and that's mm. the feeling I got from podcast hosts is if I met Pat Flynn, I think that's who he would be. You know, I know a little bit yes. about his family, not everything, you know, a little bit about his kids, not everything. But, you know, like I, I know him. Um, and so if someone is meeting Justin for the first time, they're probably and, and to be honest, uh, I don't know if I ever told you this, but the first time, even before I met you and, you know, when, um, you know, when Dave mentioned, you know, you're a valueologist, first thing I do is Google. And you know, your name popped up and then you know your book which i subsequently bought although i did get a signed copy from you after that um read the book you know in prep for the meeting you know went through a few podcasts and it actually made a lot of sense so when when i met you you know it was already you know there was some level of background and i think that's actually really important i think for you know for anyone considering business or wanting to be in that space uh, to have that because it does, I mean, that's kind of the world that we're living in, it seems to be, um, which is an exciting part, I think, um, you know, to be able to have that content. Um, but coming back to the valueologist part, um, so the thing that got me quite intrigued is because not many people speak about this. And um, there's a book that I read, it was called Built to Sell. And, you know, they always talk about business when they talk about, like, almost like you need to work the blueprint back. You, know, you need to say, okay, this is the blueprint. This is what I want to sell the business for. And this is how, you know, I would put, out, put the systems in place. This is what I would need to do. Um, and the first time I heard you talking about, you know, uh, valuing a business um, and being a valueologist, that's what I thought. You know, I thought, okay, if I could put the spreadsheet together and work backwards, that would be pretty cool. You know, whether you execute on that or not is a different story. But the fact that you're thinking on those lines is that something that you wanted to get across uh, from your teaching over the 20 years as well? So the, the teaching of what it means to create value and to do evaluation, as I've got better at it, my focus has been on identifying the handful of levers that one has to pull to influence the valuation. You know, if I pull this lever, I get that outcome. If I pull that lever, I get this other outcome. And once, once you know the levers, then that can be translated into a business practice and understanding actually what has to happen in a business. And one of the problems with valuation is that a practitioner can get very uh, let's say, lost in the spreadsheet. Tinker this number, tinker that number, have that outcome, forgetting that in actual fact, whatever you do has got to translate into management, action, delivery, all those things that have got to take place in the real world. So my intention in my teaching is to be able to say, well, here's the spreadsheet, okay, you can do this, but how do we translate it into actually doing things and getting things done? So that's been the, the focus of my teaching. So as you, as you rightly say, if you can at least say in the spreadsheet, I want to achieve this, 
but then translated into what you actually need to go and do, I think that's the most important piece. And that's how I, how I try and teach it. So it's not so much teaching valuation for the sake of being able to value a company. It's teaching it so that you know the levers as a manager or owner to go and pull, to go and execute on it. Uh, that's that's the important piece. So, um, what was the original question? I'm trying to come back to <laughs> you know, the starting your point. Actually use it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. So whether the students actually actually use that, I don't know if they do. And part of my challenge in the teaching world is that I think it's a South African thing. I assume that because that's the only experience I have is that students come to my classroom with very little financial knowledge. I think it's a product of the education system in South Africa. And then my mistake often is I try and take them too far. I want to show them this world of value creation. And I don't want to turn them into accountants. I make that clear. That's not my job. But to get the world of valuation, you've got to have some of that foundation. And Sometimes I take them over the over the rocks too quickly, you know, over the foundation <laughs> too fast because I want to show them the valuation. But my message always to students is that, you know, I'm going to take you on this journey. We'll start here. By the end of your journey, you'll be able to look at a set of financial statements of a listed company. You'll be able to determine if they're creating value or not. You might even be able to do a valuation if you can get that far. But most importantly is this is the first step. And you need to go and do it again. And you need to listen to someone else who's not me. You need their perspective. And you need to try and map it back onto what I've told you so that you can start to build this picture for yourself. So you can see the world of value creation and valueology for what it is because it's diverse with many different opinions. Businesses show up in different ways that you can only get to the world of understanding value creation through the experience of walking through this, this valley of all these different experiences. And, mm. uh, you know, it's, it's not a once-off experience learning this stuff. It's over and over and over. Mm. I, I like about, I like the you know um, what you mentioned about you know taking them through listed companies because I think that's that's a real test you know we we can question whether how applicable or how you know how much of accuracy there is to that but at least it's some model that's you know that there's some level of stability around the figures but what I really liked also about what you did you mentioned accountants but you almost like again this is a bravery part but you know you don't you you question how even accountants see it. And, um, you know, I did corporate finance and that's where I learned about, you know, you know, Gordon's dividend growth model and all of those cool things and, um, you know, cost of equity, you know, which I didn't know before, but I almost like see that as more like an economist hat on it, you know, sometimes, because I think, you know, when accountants look at it, it's pure numbers. And I think that's probably what your students find as well. And it's very clear, you know, like here's the numbers that come in, but, you know, you have to interpret those numbers in a certain way. And always, I mean, I think economists, you know, accountant hat. And, um, you know, I, I like, you know, I like how you dissect those, those financials to say, uh, you know, although it's seeing, you know, it's like this, you know, this is probably how you should be viewing this from a valuation model. Was that intentional as well? It is intentional. I, I'm quite 
kind of harsh, maybe use the word brave. I'm brave in the classroom in the sense that I suggest that I don't want to look at this world of value creation and business performance through the lens of an accountant. Because I often find that that lens is not helpful. Accountants think in assets and liabilities, but the rest of the world doesn't necessarily operate like that. So I try to position it for students in the way that they see the world. And the way my interpretation of that is just about everyone who finds their way into my classroom comes from the operations of a business. They are dealing with the assets and the working capital, stock on the shelf, suppliers supplying them with goods, output from a manufacturing process or managing a call center. It's very operational. And they don't see the, the capital side of the business. You talk about the cost of equity and the cost of debt and sources of capital. That's foreign to them. So I wanted to present a business in the way that employees mostly experience it. To say, well, here's what you do, and this is how we measure you. And here's what those CEOs and CFOs do in terms of securing the capital and the sustainability of cash flow and those sorts of things. But that's not your world. And just notice that that's the case. And I think students appreciate that change in perspective. And for me, that's the important piece, is that because accountants have this rule-based way of seeing the world, and if you think about that GARP book that's you know gets bigger and bigger every year, how, how many rules it is, to say, well, that's fine for regulatory reporting, but for performance and valuation, all of that stuff gets in the way. So let's move it and let's see this through the lens of value creation and valuation, and you can get rid of all the, uh, let's see, what would you call it? You can get rid of, without using a derogatory word, yeah. <laughs> you can get rid of all that. the accounting clutter. That's okay. maybe the way to, to say it, mm -hmm. yes. And once you've done that, you can see what's in front of you and the levers, as I spoke about earlier, start to appear. So, mm -hmm. yes, that perspective, I think, is, is important. But the accountants sometimes get a bit defensive about it. You know, no, no, but this is the way we do it. But invariably, if I spend enough time with the accountants, they come around to my way of seeing it. You know, I'll manipulate them enough <laughs> to say <laughs> Yes, you have an important role and your function in terms of reporting sustainability and all those things that accountants want is important. But when it comes to educating people who don't know your world, you actually do it very poorly. <laughs> yeah, I would still keep with my word, which is brave. Um, because I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think lots of people do get defensive of this. And, you know, it makes me think of like, uh, I remember many years ago, I mean, first year, sitting in a first year economics class, and the lecturer, which I quite enjoyed, you know, the whole supply demand. Um, I never did economics in high school, um, but he was saying, you know, there's the accountant's view and there's the economist's view. And like, you know, I can't think like an accountant, you know, because yeah. they work on historical values and, you know, like always backward looking. And uh, well, you know, obviously CFOs have to be forward looking, but, uh, you know, and, and I thought, and that, that, that always stuck with me, you know, and, uh, you know, obviously I got the, you know, the accounting, you know, qualification and all of that stuff, but it still sticks with me, you know, like how accountants view the world and how, you know, like, you know, like when you put a business hat on it, 
um, you can't think like that. You know, you, you can't just think in terms of budgets and backward looking. You have to think like forward looking, you know, five, 10 years. And how do you put that economist, you know, like hat on it? Um, and look at the figures. And that's why I find your model quite refreshing. Whereas, whereas uh, you know, you do dissect that financial statements and say, uh, yeah, maybe you should be looking at it like this. Um, so I like that. Um, but, uh, you know, if we, it's not the beat on accountants kind of show, but, um, you know, if we do, if we do look at that, I mean, was there certain cases where you really had to fight for your opinion in a boardroom? Uh, we called it the boardroom war stories, but are there any stories that kind of spring to mind where you had to really convince someone, actually, this is probably the better way to look at it? Yes, yeah, I do. And I didn't win this battle. Um, so I, I, have a, I have a war story around this that's, that's sad in one respect. But for me, it was a, a learning experience that made me just mature very quickly. Um, I'll keep company names out of it. Please do. <laughs> but, um, to say that it was a large blue chip company in South Africa who I had a consulting contract with that involved putting together investment deals in their supply chain. They were trying to bring finance and uh, black empowerment partners together for their supply chain uh, in order to meet B targets, etc. And in this case, they uh, the company had a long-standing investment in a supplier that they wanted to divest from. And because I was uh, I had a consulting arrangement with them, they, the the head of the business unit said, "Please go and value this business for me, so that I can take it to the board and get some agreement around a path forward." to sell this business. And I, sure, I was more than happy to do that. The business was uh, kind of half a day's drive out of town. And I traveled down there, having advised the owners of the business that I was coming on behalf of the company who was their shareholder. And, you know, this is some of the material I need, and I'm going to do this evaluation exercise and a bit of a due diligence. And I went off there for a few days and I spent some time in their boardroom with all the files and all the financial information and conversations and all those sorts of things. And what I was going to do was a comprehensive valuation of the business, taking into account all the material that I needed. And I came away with a very successful outcome. The guys were very welcoming and went out to dinner and looked after me and gave me all the information I needed. And I compiled this report that I was very proud of, and I went back to uh, the business, and I walked into the office, and the owner, it's not the owner, it was the, the manager, he said to me, he said to me, Justin, give me the number. And I kind of stopped for a moment because... I thought this is not about the number. Of course, he was asking for the what's the value of the business. He really wanted to know. I said, well, there's more than just the number. There's, there's the supporting documentation and everything that goes around it. Um, and I should be able to take you through everything. He said to me, look, I can't do that now, but give me the report and we'll have a conversation. So I gave him the report with which he went to the executive summary, like standing in front of me. And there was the number. And in that moment, to me, it looked like 
I had taken a knife and put it through the heart of his favorite child. (laughs) (laughs) The disappointment in his face was Mm. just like so obvious. And he said to me, no, 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 this is not the value. And I was a bit taken aback because I thought I'd done a beautiful piece of work, but in his mind, he had made up a story that this thing was probably 10 times the value of what I had valued it to be. It was his child and it was going to get sold off and he was going to be the hero for making this investment and my valuation wasn't good enough. And he said to me, without reviewing any of the report, he said to me, no, I think it's worth this. Go and change your report and reflect that number. Mm. And it was in that moment, you know, you know that moment, you just know, mm-hmm. oh, wow. Okay. All right. So he gave the report back to me and he went off to his meeting and I drove home in silence thinking about what just happened and how was I going to respond and what were the implications of my response to going and just changing the number. And I phoned him a day later and I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to double check my numbers. I'm going to go back down there. I'm going to see if there's anything I missed because now that you've told me what you think this is, maybe I missed something, but I'm going to be thorough. And off I went and I asked the guys there and, you know, they didn't know valuation. Those guys were, they were in the mining industry and they were supplying goods to a mining company. So they were like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to make sure I had all the information. So, you know, doesn't matter how far, hard I looked at it. um, I thought my valuation was right. And I went back to him and I said, you know, I can't change this. I cannot justify the number that you want. And, you know, I'm happy with this. And he said, no, 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 that's not acceptable. And you need to think carefully about our future together. And there was the next piece that um, I, I had to walk away from this job because he wasn't going to give me any more work because I hadn't given him the number that he wanted. Hmm. Um, and this was, I mean, this was a material consulting gig for me and it was a retainer and I, you know, I had to say, well, you know, what, do I sell my soul here? <laughs> do I change, <laughs> scratch it out, put this number in and say, okay, let's keep going. I wasn't prepared to do that. Mm. And I like that. yeah, uh, I had to I, look, life worked out. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it was shortly after that where another opportunity came up that maybe wouldn't have if that wouldn't hadn't gone away. You know, it's easy to join the dots backwards, mm-hmm. but at the at the time it was like, oh my goodness, I, you know, I've got to I've got to face this. It was hard. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think um, on my side, I think what I like about that story and I think that kind of reinforces, you know, the reason I wanted to do this type of show is that it gives anyone that's listening to it, a good sense of who Justin is, you know, from a, from a character and then, you know, because it's a win, you know, obviously I did a few consulting jobs, but it's so easy to be caught in that trap. And, you know, where mm. you can't, where you think you can't be brave enough and you can't call out certain people and stuff like that. But I'm really glad that you kept to those principles, you know, of integrity and, you know, just being honest, this is what I think it is. 
And I think so, so few people, you know, you go back to the politics, you know, on your show. Um, but, you know, that's part of our, our problem is that, you know, we, we're not strong enough, you know, to stick up for this is what I believe in and this is what mm. I think it is. Whereas it's so easy for you to, you know, to just change that number. I mean, like, really, like, would anyone have noticed? Um, yeah. But, yeah. you know, I think you would have noticed. And, you know, I think it would always, you couldn't have said this story in the way you said it just now, which is amazing. So, yeah. Um, so, from what I hear, though, no regrets on it? No regrets there. No, uh, none at all. And. Cool. I would like to be able to say I can conduct my life in that way all the time, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, I, yeah. I've 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 certainly come across scenarios where I've had to compromise, mm. uh, not not to that degree, you know, mm. not, uh, and th and that's the thing. Sometimes when the gap between where I am and what's wanted is big, mm. I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but when the gap is small. Like, oh, you know what? I can compromise on this. The challenge is when you get asked to compromise over and over and over, and then you mm -hmm. creep your way to the point at which you ask, mm. is this gone too far? Yes. That's when it's harder, isn't it? Well, that's when I yeah. find it much harder to be able to. And then it like got to step back and say, oh, my goodness, how do I look at all of this? And am mm. I prepared to now say no? Um, those are the hard ones, and I, I'm sometimes a bit, bit embarrassed and sad to say, you know, I find myself up against the fence where I'm. I should have, I should have said no, but I haven't. Mm. Yeah, and and I think, um, I mean, in this, in the spirit of keeping it real, I think, I mean, it's good that you're saying that because I mean, life is life as well, and sometimes you do have to make those decisions. Um, but I, you know, like, um, when you mentioned the story about, you know, like compromising over time, I, I'm obviously going to get the, you know, the, the basis of it wrong. But the idea is that, you know, like if you take a product and you just keep on compromising small things on quality, you know, like maybe it's like a little bit of this, a little bit of this. And in over, over five years, the, the entire product is not the same as it was, you know, mm. in year one. And yeah. I can't remember where I heard that from, but it always sticks with me, you know, especially when it comes to, those, you know, sticking to your guns and sticking to what you believe in uh, and stuff like that. And also the concept of, you know, ethics and morality. I think, you know, most people say, oh, no, but, you know, I'm behaving this way. But, you know, from a morality point of view, you know, is it the right way? And I think, um, yeah, so I think having those values is always important and knowing, you know, how close you want to be to compromising those is, is going to be difficult. But, yeah. I think the the big thing is life. You know, life always. I mean, there's no there's no linear path with it. You know, there's yes. always curveballs everywhere, and I don't presents think itself differently, doesn't it? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, but that's why I couldn't be in politics as well. I mean, like, <laughs> not that I have a stomach for it, but you know, like, I'm, I I can just imagine the compromises you have to make all the time, you know, to be able to get what you want get to get done. Um, I'm, I was listening to, I, I, I listened to lots of the audible books and I was listening to the one from Barack Obama, you know, about his political campaign. And, and even then, yes. you know, like he talks about, because you only see the end, end results, you know, you see the, yeah. you know, like, well, you know, the, the speaker, you know, but the amount of compromises you have to do just to get, you know, something to pass through Senate, um, you know, it's interesting. So, yeah. So coming back to the life part, I think that's important. 
Um, and was there any success stories though? I mean, was there any stories around value, valueology um, that you thought you helped a com- company through and it was actually, you know, really, you know, it was a smile on everyone's face and they thought, okay, that's, that was amazing. Yeah. Um, so with the, yeah, with the valuation, it's, it's also an opportunity to present what could be. If you are able to achieve this or achieve that, then this is how it's going to show up in the valuation. And sometimes business folk get so involved in the day-to-day running of the business that they do lose sight of where's the horizon and where do we want to get to, where do we want to go to. And valuation can provide that opportunity to say, well, value is about what's in the future. It's not about what's behind you as as much as what behind does to some degree inform the future. It's about being able to lay this, this kind of picture going forward. And then for company then to recognize, and there was one specific company that I worked with that was in the retail sector that was aware of this margin compression that they were having through competition and other people coming into their sector and being able to show that if that margin compression continues and if you stay in this sector with only these products, this is where you end up. And that doesn't look pretty. And that's sometimes the challenge for people to say, well, where does this end up if we keep going along this path? And then to recognize that here's this point of inflection that if you are able to introduce a new product or package your products differently or bring a service that goes with the product, then you can shift yourself away from the competition to be able to offer something different. And once you put the service line that goes with the product, this is what it looks like. Then, oh, wow, okay, we had never seen that. And part of a valuologist is about being able to paint a picture of the future. But to be able to paint that picture, I need to be able to understand the business from the perspective of the owner and their understanding and what that looks like. So that's sometimes the value that I can bring to a company is to say, let me try and paint a picture in the numbers that maybe you haven't seen yet. Mm. And part of that is because they can't have a conversation with their accountant. I don't want to beat up on the accountants, but the accountant is keeping them in this framework of this is how we do things rather than being able to look at how things could be different. Mm. Yeah. So a non-accountant helps them with that. (laughs) I think that's part of the, you know, the conservative nature, you know, that accountants obviously have a reputation for um, and things like that. And uh, yeah, uh, but but I think obviously they have their their space in the world. But I I think, you know, what I'm hoping with this episode as well is that if anyone hasn't looked at this uh, and hasn't read books, you know, where you have to work backwards and stuff like that, it's, um, there is a model. You know, and there is there are ways that you can do this. You know, in terms of thinking yeah. about it, and I think that's really important um, um, because I think it's just another one of those tools that you have in your bag. You know, that you can almost call on uh, to look at. So, if anyone wanted to learn more about it, how would so? I, I, you know, in the show notes, we'll put up your your podcast episodes uh, or your podcast ch- uh, show. Um, I know you're quite active on YouTube as well, so I'll put up the links to the YouTube channel. 
Um, and then you do have a course, you know, so we'll put up the course, um, links to the course. And then lastly, the book. Um, it's not a long read. I mean, I don't think, but I think it's, it's a really good way that you can get a, um, you know, basis around the valuology part. Um, is there anything else that people, you would almost like say to business owners or to, well, I suppose it'll be mainly business owners or whoever's responsible for, you know, valuing or looking at value in a company. Um, is there anything else, anywhere else that you would point them? Not, maybe not even your, you know, just your, your resources, but to, to help them with their thinking. I know you mentioned the professor, you know, maybe we'd find, I can get the link for you from you for, yes, the, for yeah. that YouTube channel. Um, is there anything else that you would, that you would point them to? So, uh, Professor Damodaran is for someone who is um, looking for some really technical stuff around valuation. And that is for quite an advanced user. So, it's not for your average average consumer. But for someone who is kind of just coming into this space, um, my, my book is available as a PDF for free and the link will, you know, someone can go along there and they can get a copy of the PDF. And that's, that's a very good uh, kind of introduction. I am um, a student of two, I should, I should call them, I'm going to call them gurus for now. Uh, two professors who were very influential in, in my learning. And one was Professor Mike Ward. I first came across uh, Professor Ward when he was the head of Vitz Business School. He subsequently moved on to, to Gibbs. And I learned strategic finance uh, from, from Mike Ward. And he wrote a, a very good book called, I was going to reach out for it and show it to you, um, called Turning, uh, Turning Vision into Value. Turning Vision into Value. Now, the reason why I talk about that is because my book is more about the value creation view, but Professor Ward's book is about valuation. It's the next step after mine. So if someone really wanted to get insight into valuation, that is uh, such a good textbook. And in fact, I used it on my MBA teaching because all the lecturers came before me, used these massive thud factor books, you know, the and it just intimidated students, but Professor Mike Ward's book is fantastic. And the other gentleman who's become a really good friend of mine over the years is Chris Miller. Uh, Chris Miller hasn't written any books, but if you search for Chris Miller's uh, articles in Google Scholar, you will find some fantastic work around um, fund management, momentum in markets, and sure, many subjects. I'm not even doing it justice, but I've learned so much from spending time with Chris at his home, looking over his shoulder at his computer modeling and Excel modeling and those sorts of things. It's been the source of so much of my growth that if you were to look for the work of Chris Muller, then you would find some, some very good stuff. Uh, Chris has shared with me over the years so much data that I use in my teaching that has just made my life as a as a teacher of valuation so much easier. So those would be the two sources that I would go to. Okay, that sounds amazing. 
I mean, um, and I think there's there's a case to be said. You know, you you mentioned very academics. Uh, well, you mentioned academics. You know, but uh, I think there's there's so much of scope for that because I think you know I, I'm a firm believer in this the the whole research part and you know translating that in terms of you know corporate stuff. And I think there's there's always a, these two sectors. You know, I find the academics play in their own space, and I find you know corporates play in their own space. And I don't know if it's just a South African thing as well. Uh, because obviously companies like Google and Facebook get this right, you know, where you get academics into and they have huge <clears throat> research arms and stuff like that. Um, I just find, you know, and, and maybe it was just the places I worked at, there wasn't enough of that, you know, where you spend, you know, a huge chunk of your your time just thinking about stuff and thinking about what's coming up in five years from a... Uh, and I think the academics do this really well. You know, that's the nature of masters and PhDs. Um, you know, looking at the current research, looking at you know what's kind of coming out, and you know, doing research around that. Uh, but I think there's definitely a space for corporates to using that more. Do you do you get the same sense? Yes, definitely. Now, I, I'm a little bit skeptical of academia in the stricter sense. And Chris Miller and Mike Ward don't fit into the traditional model well because they will use what we would call empirical finance. In other words, they would base their work based on the what the data from the market tells them. Whereas academics go and kind of make up this theory over here and says, does this fit into the market? How well does it fit? <laughs> and then, mm -hmm. oh, it fits fairly well. So therefore mm -hmm. we can teach it like this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we still talk about capital asset pricing models and those sorts of things. And yet that theory has been debunked so many times for so long, but yet it finds its way into an MBA classroom and it gets taught and it gets taught all wrong. <laughs> and one thing I found is that Chris and Mike teach it in a way that says, this is what the market tells us about, certainly about South Africa. It's not pure academic. It's it's more empirical academics, if that's such a thing, mm. which for me is important, is that you, you need to base what you're talking about in empirical data that manifests itself in, out there in the real world. As one of my students said to me the other day, Justin, what happens in the real world? I said, aren't we in the real world? Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that where we are? Yeah. But yes, I know what he means when he says the real world. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I, I must admit, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that as well. I mean, I can't, yeah, I had the opportunity at one stage, you know, to go down the academic route, but I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't stomach that completely. Um, I mean, I, I, and, and I think that, that's almost like uh, what you said now, you know, the using the empirical data, I think is amazing. You know, if you could do that, then I think you're providing true value, you know, keeping with your, um, you know, your line of thinking. Um, so the last question uh, I have before we close up is just to ask, uh, you know, the one, the one thing I want to get out of the show is that, you know, you don't have to be a business owner. You don't have to be, uh, you know, healthcare practitioner, like, you know, like I mentioned, I think healthcare practitioners in private practice are business owners. And I think they have a really special space, you know, where they play in, uh, you know, once they, you know, once the engine starts running properly, but I've met so many amazing people in corporates that I thought were creating value all the time. Is there anything that you would almost say around building value? Because I think that, you know, value is the one word I associate with Justin, um, you know, and is there anything that you would say to anyone about building value? doesn't matter where, you know, what that space is. Um, 
Is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, yeah. You make an important point here because value means so many different things to different people. In my world, value is the value of a business, what someone will pay for it. Uh, value creation is generating returns that are more than your cost of capital. That's one perspective of value. There are many other perspectives. For some people, value is spending precious time with a loved one. That's a different perspective of value, and that's important. And maybe you know, creating value in your business allows you to be able to get that valuable time with a loved one. So they might be related. But you can create value in the lives of other people just by showing up in an authentic way, for example in how you can support someone through a difficult time that they're going through. So I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not precious about what value is. And although I call myself a valueologist, it's more around the, the numbers side of a business. But, you know, th- think about a really good experience you had in dealing with a company where you might have, you just got good customer service. That's value. So, you know, I think as a, as a kind of an ending note is that by providing something beyond someone's expectations, be it in selling them a product or helping make their life easier or solving a problem for them, that's value creation as well. So however you want to define it in your world, in your space, that's fine. Define it as such. And that's the beauty of value creation is that you can define it in many different ways. Mm. I, I like that. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, um, I'm glad I asked the question because I think so, so many people get caught up of like, I'm not in business, so I can't do this. But, um, you know, just putting my employee hat on as well. It's like, you know, and maybe I'm old school with this, but you know, it's always like, do the best job you can, you know, help the people around you and help your manager or the owner, whoever that is above you. And then I think you, you're you someone that, you know, it doesn't matter what boardroom you're sitting in or what meeting room, they want you on their side. Um, you know, I did an interview once and the guy said, uh, you know, I think the, the recruitment agent um, said, um, you know, the, this person is someone that you could take to war with you. You know, and I thought that, that always stuck with me. You know, it's like, there's a few people that kind of stick out. And I think it doesn't matter what you're doing. I think, and I think maybe that's also a South African-based thing. You know, um, yeah, whatever you're doing, just do it to the best of your ability. Do it and get better every single day. And I think that's, that's for me, that's what building value is. You know, like just get better every day, every month, every year. And I think over time, then you become that person, you know, that someone wants to take to war with you. Well, take you to war with Um On your side, is there anything that I should have asked you that you thought um, you know sh- uh, we should have covered? So this is not this is not about the valueologist, and I and I. It's more about who Justin is, and it's perhaps because I wrote an article on it this morning. So today is a milestone in my run every day running streak. I've been running every day for three years. Wow. And I wrote a piece for the Just in Time articles today, which is the lessons I learned about from 
what I learned about myself and the world from running every day. Um, and it's if it's something that you think is appropriate, um, I'll I'll give you a link. Maybe you can you can mm. pop it in down below, and I'll I'll share I share in the just in time piece uh, those lessons that I've learned about running every day, and the lessons are less about running, but more about how I show up in the world, and 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 you know I, I suppose some lessons that I've learned about consistency and the benefit of compounding and agreements that I make and changing perspective. And I think those relate to anyone in what they do every day. For me, I'm just crazy. I choose to run every day, but other people choose to pitch up to work every day. <laughs> and I sometimes look at them and say, how do you do that? <laughs> um, <laughs> as much as they look at me and say, how do you do that? Um, you know, we choose our own iron rod to, to keep ourselves upright. Um, mm. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a crazy streak runner, run every day. And uh, I think that also kind of tells people about who I am. Mm. Yeah, and congrats on those on that milestone. I mean, I've been following that as well. And I think when you hit the, what was it, a thousand day consecutive? Yeah. Uh, cons you know, a thousand consecutive days. I thought that was amazing. But yeah, you know what that teaches? And again, this is more a personality trait maybe as well, is that consistency and that perseverance, you know, to, yeah, it doesn't matter what the goal is, you know, just get better and just keep on doing it because we find so many excuses for not doing it. Um, but I couldn't help but, uh, you know, smile when you mentioned, you know, the running thing. Um, you know, at some point I got interested in golf and I found this Deepak Chopra book about, you know, golf. And I thought, that's interesting. I didn't know he was a golfer. And I obviously read the book, but it's nothing about, you know, like how you become better at golf. It was more about mindset, actually, which is what okay. Deepak Chopra does. But, yes. you know, it was about the futility of hitting this white ball around the course and how you could never, ever hit it in the same way. It doesn't matter whether you're Tiger Woods in his heyday or, you know, anyone else. But, you know, you could, that, and that's the, you know, the, the beauty of, of golf, I think. But you still get on the course and you do it every single day with the right mindset. And I think that's, that's you know, right. tying it back to your running. And it's a mindset of just waking up every morning at half past four or five o'clock and just putting on the shoes and just, you know, hitting the pavement. Um, so I like that. Uh, I like this as well. This was really amazing. Um, I'm going to link to everything. I'll try to f my best to get all of those from you and put them in sure. the show notes. And then on our social media platforms, we'll put those out as well. So if anyone wants to reach out to you, I get a lot of value. So if you wanted to get, you said you don't get too many <laughs> acknowledgements around it, I definitely get value from the podcast. I know it's short. So you actually answered one of my questions, which is why is it that short. I just find with our shows, I mean, the conversation just carries on. But um, um, but yeah, I, I like the nuggets of information because that's the flip side is that you do, you know, you can get through it, you know, quite quickly. Mm. Um, so thanks very much for your time. Thanks for agreeing to do this. And I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, me too. Uh, chat to you soon. Okay. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode.